How would you describe your freedom? The idea and ideal of freedom is something people have been striving for and fighting for seemingly forever. Throughout the ages, man has pursued greater and greater freedom, that right and that ability to determine one's own future, one's actions, not controlled by the state or society or others. Most Americans believe they know a thing or two about freedom. Our country was birthed out of a desire for more of it. In the American Revolution, the colonists were by no means slaves, but they were economically oppressed by the British. You remember the slogan, right? No taxation without representation. The colonists wanted the freedom to govern themselves. They deemed this a cause worth fighting and dying for, and and here we are today, free at least from the British monarchy. And we do indeed enjoy many freedoms compared to the world. The American Revolution went on to inspire the French to do the same. In time, they too rose up against their ruling class to fight for freedom from oppression. The French later were so enamored by the American ideal of liberty that they gifted us the Statue of Liberty. We forget that. And that's what it commemorates, our American sense of liberty. The statue is found on Liberty Island, features Lady Liberty, herself named after Libertas, the Roman goddess of freedom. She holds a torch to light the way. She has a broken chain at her feet. And she holds a tablet representing the law with the date of the American Declaration of Independence inscribed upon it, July 4th, 1776. And she's a symbol of freedom, greeting all immigrants who come into the country. And the message is, here you will be free. And this ideal of freedom has spread mostly across the globe. Now, most societies today uphold this idea and ideal of freedom. However, just how free are people? It seems like every new movement that comes along promises greater freedom, but just how much freedom do they actually produce? Take, for example, something called Marxism. You heard that before? It's this 18th century economic, political, social movement. And it promised what? It promised greater freedom. Freedom from the economic ruling class, freedom from those who own the means of production. Marxism prescribes a way of leveling the playing field and equalizing society so that everyone can enjoy the same freedoms. After all, if you don't own a factory, if you're just the factory worker, you're not really free. You're, you're limited by opportunity, and you can't break out of that. In theory, sure, it sounds nice. I mean, wouldn't it be nice if everyone could contribute to society according to their ability and take from society only according to their need, from health care to education to labor to wages? It sounds great. But put into practice, these ideas have never worked. From socialism to communism, from Soviet Russia to China to North Korea, The societies who have embraced these ideas have proven to be the least free in the world. And why is this? Because Marx and people like him, they failed to take into account human depravity. And people are way too selfish for something like this to work. Everyone wants more for themselves. If given the ability to take, people will take as much as they can. And if given the the freedom to to choose to contribute, they will contribute as little as they can get away with. Corruption is the number one problem in such systems because of human depravity. And the result is a great loss of liberty. These ideas promise 
a type of freedom only to result in another type of slavery. But in this regard, capitalism isn't that much better. Capitalism, the the freedom of enterprise, freedom to start a business, make a profit without restriction, pursue whatever venture you want with free trade, it certainly is the better of the two by by far. But, But for society to truly improve and thrive in such systems depends largely on the generosity of the rich, on the willingness of of the rich to help those who are poor. But again, this underestimates human depravity. How many people say, if I were rich, I would help others? And then they get rich and they help only themselves. Because of human depravity, the ability, the, the freedom to make as much money as you want has only resulted in huge amounts of greed and covetousness, and that's our culture now. Look at all the capitalist countries, and there are many freedoms. Get the job you want, live where you want, great stuff. But how many now at the same time are enslaved to money? Be it through insurmountable credit card debt or just a desire for more. Money and greed is their new master. And it all started with a promise of freedom. You start with these promises of freedom and they all go awry. And in reality, down through the ages, many evils have been justified in the name of freedom. The sexual liberation movement in America in the 60s was all about what? Freedom. They promised greater freedom. No more boundaries, no more restrictions. Just do what you want. And what has been the result of this so-called greater freedom? Sexual morality, a 50% divorce rate, STD levels through the roof, children born out of wedlock, the dissolution of the family, Then came the abortion movement right on the heels, now 50 million dead. Sounds like a high price to pay for sexual freedom. And at the same time, how many in turn are now enslaved to their sensual desires and paying the price for it? It's one type of freedom in exchange for another type of slavery. But isn't this how Satan's deception began in the first place? Back in the garden, wasn't he, in essence, promising Eve freedom? He said, look, when you eat the fruit, you're not going to die. No, your eyes will be opened. You, you will know good from evil. You will be like God. What was he promising? Freedom. Freedom to know. Freedom to choose. Freedom to be like God. Really, though, it, it's a freedom from God. You, you don't need God to tell you what, you, what to do. You don't need God to tell you right from wrong. You don't need God at all. You can be like God. It's freedom. Isn't this what people still want today? This total independence from God, his law, his restrictions. If this was a cunning lie in the moment Adam and Eve sinned, they gained freedom in one sense, but slavery in another. When they ate of the fruit, their shackles to God came off, but the slave driver of sin entrapped them and bound them tighter than before. One type of freedom offered in exchange for another type of slavery. This is the pattern of deception and spiritual enslavement that has existed from the beginning. And this pattern proves true 
in the false teachers of Peter's day. This morning we come to the final passage describing the plague of false teachers from 2 Peter chapter 2. So take your Bibles and open there now. 2 Peter chapter 2. It's been a five-week journey through this intense chapter, and we've seen God speak through the Apostle Peter time and time again, identifying and exposing false teachers for who they are, or what they do, what they have coming to them. And through this passage, Peter's primary concern is to identify the characteristics of false teachers so as to warn the churches to watch out. We've come to see them for what they are like. Their speech and their actions are corrupt, with greed and sexual morality being their worst offenses. And here at the end of this this diatribe, Peter turns from describing the characteristics of false teachers to describing their status. In other words, instead of telling us so much what they look like, he's going to tell us now just really who they are in the core of their being. This is just who they are. This is their status. And most notably, their status is enslaved. They are enslaved to self, to sin, to the flesh. Far from being the spiritual leaders they pretend to be, they are in fact spiritually dead. And this is the great irony because they promise so much freedom, yet in reality they're slaves. They're enslaved to sin. Like Satan, their master, they offer one type of freedom in exchange for another type of slavery. This is a truly devious, destructive, and damning message. And one more time here, we need to hear this word of warning from God, which still applies today. So we're picking things up from where we left off last week. Then we're going to cover the last four verses of chapter 2 in Second Peter. So here from 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, we're going to find four descriptions of the false teacher's status. Four descriptions of the false teacher's status. Not so much what they look like, but again, this is who they are in the core of their being. You need to learn to see through the cover so that you might reject them and their teaching all, all the way through. Four descriptions of the false teacher's status. The first is this, they are not free but enslaved, from verse 19. They are not free but enslaved. Look at verse 19 with me, Second Peter chapter 2. Picking up right where we left off, he says, promising them freedom in regard to these false teachers, while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. Notice it starts here with this promise. They're promising those who follow them freedom. Freedom from what? Verse 19 doesn't say, but the context makes it very clear. They're promising freedom from the moral restraints of the law. Freedom to indulge in one's desires. Freedom from accountability or judgment. And this is the essence of their teaching. They were supposedly champions of liberty. If you follow them, you'll be free, free to do what you want. 
This is what everyone wants. It's a very attractive message. I mean, look, you can have salvation. You can have a relationship with God. You can have religion. And you can keep your favorite sins. Just, what a deal. Remember, all this was taking place inside the church. These teachers infiltrated the church. They claimed to be Christians of a sort. They knew the gospel. In fact, they justified these claims of freedom from a distortion of the gospel. They claimed they had this deeper understanding. And please, always watch out for the person who comes along with this new, deeper, profound understanding that no one's ever had before. Everyone from the past 2,000 years is wrong. They've finally gotten it right, and you need to listen to them. That's just a red flag of a false teacher. The false teachers Peter was writing against were doing just that. Just look over in chapter 3 of 2 Peter, and notice how they operate. He's wrapping up this letter. He's talking about future things. Then he picks it up in in chapter 3. Look at verse 15. He says, And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, Verse 16, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, and I get this, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. Before finishing his letter, Peter takes just a few more jabs at the false teachers, and he calls them out for what? or distorting the scriptures. It's what they do. They take the plain truth of scripture and they make it say, not what it says, what they want it to say. So amazing. This still goes on. There's a few times where I find myself watching those preachers on TV. It doesn't take long before I just find myself saying, the Bible doesn't say that, the Bible doesn't say that, the Bible doesn't mean that. They just take the Bible, and it's not about what it means. It's about what what they want it to mean for their agenda. The false teachers Peter is dealing with went so far as to distort the gospel itself. And they did this by claiming that since the gospel frees you from the law and saves your soul, that you are truly free now to carry out your heart's desire without worry. In other words... Now you're saved and, and you're finally free to live how you want without fear. It is true, you are free in Christ. But this implication they draw from this, that you're free to do whatever you want, is wrong. Is a distortion of the gospel. People still do this. And I'm not just talking about false teachers, even false believers. You're... you're Ordinary, everyday, sitting in the pew, false Christian. I met so many people who call themselves Christians, but they don't even try to live rightly before God. But but this isn't a problem to them. They don't think there's anything wrong with that. To them, it's not a problem that you know they don't go to church, they don't really read their Bible, they're not really repenting of sin, they're not they're not pursuing righteousness. It's not a problem. Because, well look. I mean, they prayed the sinner's prayer that one time. They walked down the aisle when the preacher called them. They filled out that little card. 
They maybe got baptized. I mean, they're, they're saved. That They're saved. That's done with. And now that that's all taken care of, they're free. They're free to live as they please. I've, I've heard this, sadly, so many times. And, and this is the exact same false teaching we're talking about here. It's born out of this distortion of the gospel and its implications. And, and we've got to do this now. We've got to do a little bit of Bible study here. So turn to Romans chapter 6. Let's turn over for a little bit to Romans chapter 6. Paul himself was the champion of justification by grace through faith in Christ apart from the works of the law. But he feared some would try and distort this message of free grace and freedom in Christ. He knew some would take these concepts and actually use them as a covering for evil. People were going to come along. They were going to take this idea of freedom in Christ and use it as a free pass to sin, as a license to sin. He knew this was going to happen, and he talks about it. Peter's false teachers that he's dealing with, we already know, remember from chapter 3, that they already were distorting Paul's writings, and surely they were distorting his doctrine of grace. But Paul himself refutes this own line of thinking in his letters. Being free in Christ does not open the floodgates of sin. Being free in Christ does not mean you're free to just do what you want. Sin as much as you want without accountability. Now I'm sure that the false teachers, when they were distorting Paul's letters, I'm sure they skipped over these passages, the the ones that were inconvenient. Which, by the way, that's another red flag of a, of a false teacher. The ones who, they skip over those inconvenient passages in the Bible. It's like, ah, I don't really like that. Let's just move on. But in Romans chapters 3 through 5, Paul explains and expounds upon that, that core truth of justification, meaning how we are made right with God. And that comes by God's grace through our faith in Christ alone. And apart from the works of the law, it's not about being a good person or doing things. It's just by grace through faith in Christ. So that's Romans chapters 3 through 5. He really gets into that. We actually even talked about this this last Sunday night. But if all this is true, so if if that's true, if if we're under grace now, we're not under the law, keeping the law, that's not how we, we get to God. If we're free in Jesus, we're safe in Jesus if all that's true, doesn't that mean we're, we're free to do what we want and sin? And we can't be judged for it anymore because, look, hey, Jesus paid it all, right? Well, as Paul would say, may it never be. This is a, a sly distortion of the truth. In Romans 6, he exposes the distortion. So after talking about justification by faith and And really expounding upon that, he says in chapter 6, verse 1, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? 
may it never be, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? He anticipates the objection. He answers it. And look, in a sense, of course, you're free to do whatever you want. But the point is, if you're a true believer, then you now are dead. You're dead to sin. As Paul goes on to say, what happens at salvation? At salvation, you are united to Christ. Meaning, his death becomes your death. His new life becomes your new life. So the one who has been forgiven of their sins, because of their union to Christ, they will live a new life because of Jesus. Look at verse 5. He goes on, For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. That's us now. You've died to sin. You're no longer enslaved to sin. And it comes because of our union with Christ. He came to new life. In him, you come to new life. The one united to Christ will not, by definition, want to continue in their old life, to continue in their old ways, because they're new. They don't want to do that anymore. Paul expresses this union with Christ in another way, namely that that Jesus is our master now. Before salvation, we were all enslaved To sin, sin was our master driving us, compelling us to do and desire that which is wrong. But now in Christ, for those who are truly united to him by faith, you are bound to him. And now he compels you to do and desire that which is good. And although we're not made entirely perfect until the next life, Salvation in Jesus changes us, makes us new, resulting in a a new life now. You will live a new life now if you are in him. So the one who says they believe but doesn't have a new life at all, well, they've never been born again. If you are in Jesus, you will be different. Not going to be perfect, but you will be different. You will be new. Think of verse 11. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, And your members, as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you. For you are not under law, but under grace. Notice notice how these two realities are mutually exclusive. Either, Either you are alive to God, or you are alive to sin. It's one or the other. 
It's not both at the same time. If you're alive to God, then you are, by definition, dead to sin. If that's true, he says, so then stop letting sin reign in your life so that you obey its lusts. False teachers, though, they claimed you could have both. That was their claim. You could be alive to God and basically alive to sin at the same time. You can be spiritually saved and still pursue your lusts without any worry. But that's wrong. That is false. That is a distortion. Again, verse 14. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. See, they really distorted that. These heretics taught that that since you're not under the law anymore, but you're under grace, that you're free to sin. You're free from the moral restrictions of the law, so you're free to sin. But look, the exact opposite is the case. Because you are not under the law anymore, but you're under grace, you are not free to sin, you are free from sin. You are finally able to deny sin, to not sin, to honor God, to live rightly before him. That's your true freedom. And it comes because sin is not your master anymore. And who is your master? Verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. and, And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. So look, just to help you put this together, people back then, people today, they love their sin, like we once did, and they want to keep their sin. So they distort the gospel to mean that because you're saved, because you're under grace, because you're not under law, you're free to finally do everything you want. But like the false teachers of Peter's day, this is a false freedom. They they promise freedom, but this is no freedom at all. It's just a mask for slavery to sin. Instead, in Christ alone, you are truly free. Free to deny sin, free to do that which is right, free to glorify God. You're free from sin. Now we can turn back to 2 Peter now. We had to do this. Had to take a little detour. And far be it from us here to fall into that same error. Back in 2 Peter, the, the sad irony of these false teachers is that they're the ones promising this freedom, but they're the ones most enslaved. They're slaves of corruption, he says in verse 19. Instead of being true slaves of Christ, which is what all disciples are called to be, they were still enslaved to their sins, having never been born again. They still serve their old master. In recent history, we see a lot of now 
apostate churches falling into the same error. They promise freedom and liberty of the same sort. These churches claim, you're free to love. Therefore, homosexuality is okay. You're free to choose. Therefore, abortion is okay. They're champions of liberty. And if you oppose them, you're you're opposing liberty. You're opposing the advance of freedom. I mean, how closed-minded, how oppressive, how intolerant of you. This is precisely like Peter's false teachers. And what amazes me about this, though, is that people, they bring this into the church and they still want to hold on to the title of Christian, but then so blatantly accept what the Bible says is sin. But they twist scriptures to calm their consciences. It doesn't really fit, though, but it doesn't have to fit that well. Because, look, after all, they're enslaved and they're going to do what they want to do. They're going to make it fit. For he says, verse 19, for by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. Again, this describes the present and ongoing status of the false teachers. They have been overcome by sin, hence enslaved. Important distinction here, though. Make sure you get this. There's a difference between wrestling with sin and being overcome by sin. All Christians wrestle with sin. You better be wrestling with sin. It's a lifelong battle. Sin is constantly trying to to pin you down, to get the better of you, to enslave you. Yet God gives you strength through the Spirit to fight for His glory. So, So you wrestle. Sometimes you get the better of your sin. Sometimes your sin gets the better of you, knocks you down. But true believers are never overcome. They repent by grace, they get back up by grace, and they get back to wrestling with their sin. And they will keep getting back up. They will keep repenting. They will keep wrestling forever in this life. Because in Christ, they have overcome sin. That's why John, 1 John, John in Revelation calls Christians overcomers, the ones who overcome. But this is entirely unlike the false teachers and and really all false believers, even today. False Christians do not genuinely wrestle with sin. They may put on a show, sure, that's easy. But there's no real fight going on, there's no real struggle Sin pins them down, masters them, enslaves them, and they're fine with that. They they enjoy their sin. Their sin is not met with a true heartfelt remorse. It doesn't break their heart or repentance. They don't turn away from it. They just stay there, and they're fine. That's because they're spiritually dead. And dead people don't wrestle. Dead people are overcome. So this is the first description of the false teacher's status, which really applies to any false believer. They're not free. They're enslaved. And when they offer you freedom, it's about as real as a Monopoly get-out-of-jail-free card. Because after all, you can't offer what you don't have. 
They're still chained to sin. They don't have freedom. They bring others down with them. And you need to beware. Secondly now, the second description of their status from verse 20, they are not liberated but entangled. They're not liberated but entangled. Look at verse 20. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world, by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. Now we spent most of our time with the first description because it's the main one. We have three more and they all kind of support the first one. And here in a parallel manner we find they're not liberated but entangled. At one point these false teachers, like, like many false Christians, they made an escape from the defilements of the world. Now, at some point, they turned. They turned from paganism. They turned from their ritual practices. They, they stopped drunkenness. They stopped sexual morality for a time. They did. They, they made a turn, an escape, you could say. They reformed their character. They, they wanted to turn a new leaf. They were dissatisfied with their life, and they thought, wait, well, maybe religion, a good dose of religion will help me. So they enlisted in the ranks this new little movement called Christianity. And this reform came through, Peter says, the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. They had a personal knowledge of Jesus, that they heard about him, and they said they believed in him. But that's all this was, knowledge. It was only knowledge. Peter is careful to avoid saying they had faith in Jesus because they did not, not the saving variety at least. They just had knowledge. Even the demons have a great personal knowledge in Jesus, who he is, what he does. But this knowledge does not save them because it's not paired with trust and submission. Many people call Jesus Lord and Savior but they don't truly know Jesus, follow Jesus, submit to Jesus. They're not his real disciples. These false teachers and false believers are like Judas. He's the perfect example of the phony Christian. You know, by, by most outward appearances, Judas appeared to be a, a, a true disciple. I mean, there were signs in hindsight, but at the time, he had everyone fooled. He followed Jesus. When the crowds of Jews stopped following Jesus, Judas stayed by his side. Then when Jesus sent out the disciples in twos to preach the kingdom, Judas was in one of those pairs, preaching the kingdom. He even handled the money, which actually was not a good thing. But Judas's heart never belonged to his master. It belonged to sin. And it was only a matter of time before his true colors showed. And the same goes for false teachers. After their initial reform, they are again, he says, entangled in their beloved sins and overcome. So imagine, imagine an explorer he discovers this large cave in the jungle. And inside he finds that the biggest spider web ever seen. And he just reaches out and he touches it and his hand just is stuck. 
And then he sees the spider that made the web. And it's as big as a human. And so he panics. He yanks his hand away frantically. He runs for the entrance. As he nears the cave's entrance, entrance though, he runs smack into another web. This time his entire body is entrapped. And he can't move a muscle. He is entangled. The spider comes over, binds him, and he's overcome. And so it is with false Christians and their sin. They are entangled in their sin, bound, and overcome. They may think they've escaped, that they've gotten away. But this is a merely temporary reform through religion, not regeneration. That is such a huge point. Did you catch that? They found reform through religion, but not regeneration. Lots of people have forsaken the faith, forsaken following Christ. They've turned again to a life of sin. Even after being in the church for years, they just leave. How can this happen, people ask? Well, it's because they were never born again. They changed their ways. They shaped up. They reformed their character. But it wasn't through new birth. It was just through religion. There's a guy at my old church who uh, married for about 20 years or so. Good guy. Everyone liked him, respected. Everyone thought he was squared away. Good Christian. But out of the blue, at least to outsiders, he left his wife and his children, moved in with a younger woman. And to my knowledge, he still hasn't repented. People ask, how could that happen? Well, it's because he was never born again. I mean, he shaped up from his old ways. He looked different. He reformed. But it didn't come from regeneration. It didn't come from new birth. It just came from religion. You know, religion, doing good works, trying to earn your way to heaven, coming to church and doing what God calls you to do, to be a good person, because that's what God wants. Just religion. But doing religious works gets no one into heaven. It doesn't result in lasting change either. Only regeneration does. New birth in Christ changes and saves us. Remember, in all this, Peter is not talking about the average Christian who is wrestling with sin. So don't be discouraged. I mean, if you find yourself wrestling with sin, that's a sign of life. Because again, dead people don't wrestle. It's one thing for a Christian to be knocked down while wrestling, but it's an entirely different thing for another person to become overcome, where they, they don't even fight. They just accept it. It's just who they are. They're dead. It's a sign of ongoing spiritual death. Only for such people, he says, in verse 20, the last state has become worse than the first because now they're hardened. This is almost a word-for-word quote of Matthew 12:45, where Jesus makes the same point using demon possession as an illustration. So Jesus says, you know, just picture a person who has a demon cast out of them and that they're finally free from its influence and its power. But sometime later, that demon comes back to his old house, Jesus says, the person. And he finds him empty, swept, and put in order. So he goes, he gets seven more demons more wicked than himself, and they all inhabit this person. 
And Jesus says, for him, the last state has become worse than the first. So, you know, what does this mean? Well, the problem is that when the demon returned to the person, he found him empty, meaning devoid of the Holy Spirit. This person was reformed through religion. They changed, they shaped up, but they were never born again and then consequently indwelt by the Spirit. Therefore, their reform was short-lived and futile. Those who seek to change their ways apart from the power of God are doomed to failure. And when they go back and they're overcome, the nails in their spiritual coffin are in place. It's worse. Claiming to be liberated, they're in fact entangled worse than before. Along these lines, number three, the third description of their status. They're not ignorant, but deliberate. From verse 21, they're not ignorant, but deliberate. Look at verse 21. He continues, For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. Here Peter elaborates on just, just how it's worse for them than the first. It would have been better if they had never even heard of Jesus. It would have been better for them if they didn't even if they never even knew about the way of righteousness. Again, at some point, these people, they knew, he says, the way of righteousness. They aligned themselves with Jesus in the church. Look, sitting in the pew around you could be a person just like this. They know. They know what the Bible says. They know right from wrong. They know the gospel, that if you turn from your sins, and you place your faith in Jesus, confessing that He is the one who came, lived a perfect life, died on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins, raised to new life for your justification. And if you believe and trust in that, you will be saved. They know all that stuff. But at some point, their desire to return to their old sins and live their old life just became too great. And so they left. As before, they made a break from their sinful ways, they reformed their lifestyle, supposedly buying into Christianity, but they went apostate, turning away from, he says, the holy commandment handed down to them. That term is in the singular, by the way, just referring to the essence of the faith, following Jesus. In this regard, it would have been better for them if they had never even known Jesus. Known about the truth, known about righteousness, And the point that Peter's making is that ignorance is better than apostasy. Ignorance is better than deliberate rejection. And you might ask, well, well, how is that? Why is that? And there are several reasons. Just think, ignorant people, they can be taught. I mean, their problem is just a lack of information, so you just fill them in. They're teachable. The apostate, however, they they already know the truth and they have rejected it. They're in rebellion against the truth. They're not teachable. It is so much easier to share the gospel with someone who just has never heard of Jesus than with someone who knows Jesus and just hates him. And along these lines, 
there's so much more hope for the ignorant. For those who just don't know Jesus, there's no guarantee that when you share the gospel with them, they'll be saved, but there's hope. There's a lot of hope. Not so with the apostate. He or she knows Jesus. They know the claims of Christianity, and they have deliberately chosen their side. And for such people, there's little hope for their salvation. And for some, according to the warning passages in Hebrews, there is no hope. And finally, in the end, those who have deliberately rejected Jesus, those who have gone apostate, they knew better, they were in the church, but they turn away, they will suffer a greater punishment in hell. What this means, what this looks like, we don't know. But the Bible consistently teaches that there are different degrees of punishment and those who receive the worst are those who knew better but then turned away. And this is a universal understanding. I mean, if you had a child, you have a one-year-old, and they take your phone and they drop it in the toilet. I mean, how much can you really punish them? They don't know better. They just don't know better. But if you have a teenager who in anger takes your phone and throws it in the toilet... It's a totally different story. They know better. And you can believe a strong punishment will be coming. The Old Testament, the New Testament, both teach this distinction that with greater knowledge and greater intent, there's a greater punishment. All this just goes to say that these false teachers, that they're not acting out of ignorance. They know better. But they're deliberate. They're deliberate in their rebellion deliberate in their turn from the truth, deliberate in their rejection of Christ. And then finally, number four, the last description of their status, they are not clean but unclean, from verse 22. They're not clean but unclean. Verse 22, it has happened to them according to the true proverb. A dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow, after washing, returns to wallowing in the mire. This fourth description of the false teacher's status is more an illustration of their uncleanness. And they epitomize these two proverbs, both showcasing the repulsiveness of their actions and their character. First, he says, like dogs, they return to their own vomit. And look, I know this, this is gross, but it's true. I grew up with German shepherds, and they just do this. I, I don't know why. It's worse, though, in the ancient world, because back then, you have to realize that dogs in the ancient world, not like dogs today, meaning they were not these cute, cuddly, domestic pets. That's not how dogs were. Dogs in the ancient Middle East were half-wild scavengers. They roamed the streets and the garbage piles. They were dirty, they were smelly, they carried disease. Far from being man's best friend, they were despised, they were dangerous. And the Jews especially despised dogs. They viewed them as unclean. And to call someone a dog was a huge insult back then, contrary to today, where it's someone not so much. But what makes them really unclean is this most repulsive of habits where they return to their own vomit. Now, again, I don't know why dogs do this, and honestly, 
I didn't even bother looking it up. I don't care. (laughs) But they do. And although repulsive, this habit illustrates the false teachers. And how so? Well, just as soon as a dog rids itself of its internal impurities by vomiting, it goes right back to them, ingesting them again. And so it is with false teachers. Just as soon as they rid themselves of their internal desires, their sinful ways, their old habits, they go right back to indulging in them again, to consuming. Their escape from the filth of their sin is short-lived, and it becomes a part of them once again. And the same goes for the next illustration. He says, if so, after washing, returns to wallowing in the mire. Now, today we love dogs. Some people even love pigs. Make pets out of them, I think. We make movies about them from, you know, all dogs go to heaven to babe. We all know, right? But pigs, though, they are pretty nasty. Last month we went to the fair. We walked through the livestock section. I think more than any other animal, pigs just love being in the filth. If you just accidentally stepped in their pen, you would probably freak out. But they are just happy sleeping in just garbage and, and muck. It's just their nature. But, you know, going to the fair, it's actually a good illustration of this proverb. Now, I'm sure when they, they show off the livestock, they wash them down. But as soon as that show is over, where, where do those pigs go? They go right back into, into this the pen, right back into covering themselves with mud and their filth. And here we see a picture of the false teachers as well. Pigs, just as soon as they clean themselves of external impurities, they jump right back in the mud. And so it is with false teachers. Just as soon as they purify themselves from the external defilements of sin, they're right back at it again both internally and externally, anything they do to purify themselves is undone in a matter of time because it's part of their nature. Dogs and pigs do this because it's just a part of their nature. They're they're wild animals. That's just what they do. Or even domestic, that's just what they do. It's part of their nature. At the same time, though, if you notice, this is not true of sheep. Sheep, are not known to return to their vomit or wallow in the mire because it's not part of their nature. That really gets to the essence of this here. That's the problem with false teachers and just false Christians in general. This is the problem. Their reform does not come from regeneration. and Therefore, it's short-lived. They need a change in nature. You know, there's really only one way to make the dog stop returning to its vomit, and that is by turning the dog into a sheep. He needs a new nature. But the false teachers with a false faith, they're never born again, like many in the church today, and that explains it. And so Peter concludes his depiction of false teachers with this condemning final picture, dog's and pigs, really the worst description to a Jew of a person. They try and look clean. It's just not in them. It's just not a part of their nature. Instead, this is their status. Not free, but enslaved 
not liberated but entangled, not ignorant but deliberate, and not clean but unclean. At the same time, in this, we find such a huge and important lesson for the church, for true believers. There really is a a key lesson to learn here. I mean, look, why are false teachers and false believers, why are they condemned? Why are they lost so much? Again, it's because they sought reform, change, through religion, through stuff, but not through regeneration, not through new birth in Christ. They wanted salvation. I mean, who doesn't? But when it became apparent that they could not follow Jesus and their sin at the same time, they abandoned the true faith, and then they distorted the gospel so that they could have both in their own mind. Don't be like this. Don't fall for this. Don't pursue this freedom. This is a false freedom. Instead, you need to embrace slavery to Christ, which results in a greater freedom than you can ever imagine. You have a liberty where you're not free to sin, but you're finally free from sin. And the soul that cries out to God desperately wants that. If you have never found yourself just crying out to God, God, just please free me from this sin. Just free me. If you've never cried out like that, I wonder. But in Christ, you are free. So embrace that. Learn to love his way, the way of righteousness. You can always spot the false Christian by their lack of love. I mean, they go through the motions. A lot of people do. But they don't love it. They don't really love Christ. They don't love Christianity. They don't love pursuing Jesus, everything that goes with it. Their heart's just not in it. But if you're saved, you will love it. You may struggle, but you love the Lord and his way. Some people say Christianity is just so restrictive. I mean, you can't do this, you can't do that. Look at all the things you can't do. They hate God's boundaries. But the one who has Christ as his master has learned to love these boundaries. Even though we're not under the law for salvation, I love God's laws. Because you see them for what they are. They, they keep you safe. Can you imagine a person protesting the guardrails on the PCH by Big Sur? You may think, why would a person protest the guardrails? So you ask them, why are you protesting the guardrails on, you know, right by the cliffs? And the person replies, because I want the freedom to drive off the cliff. You see, that's the freedom that the world offers. It's a freedom, sure, that leads to death. No, I don't want that freedom. I don't want that freedom. I love the guardrails that keep me safe, and I want to stay on the road. I want to stay on the right path. Following the Lord, that's the path. And true believers love that. They may stumble, but they come back because they're on the path. Following the Lord is the way of life, of safety, of salvation. So learn as a takeaway to love that way. Love the way of righteousness. Love the freedom that slavery to Christ brings. Then and only then will you be free from harm.
Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we have to first thank you for, for what you've done for us, for freeing us from sin. At one point, all of us here were dead in sin, enslaved to sin, living in and for the lust of our flesh, and we were lost with no hope whatsoever. But you brought us to life by our faith in Christ. You made us new, and you broke our shackles only to replace them with shackles to Christ. But that is such a good thing. And we are thankful for that because he is a good master and we want to follow him. And he keeps us safe. We we thank you for that. We cherish that. I pray that we all here grow in our love for the way and for our slavery to the Lord. That we embrace that and live that. I pray for anyone, though, who is not at that point. They have not submitted themselves to Christ. They have not been broken by their sin. They still love the wrong way. They they love the wages of unrighteousness. I pray, Lord, that you would change them, that you would speak to them, that you would give them a new heart. I pray that they would see Christ for who he is, that they would see the way for what it is, and you would give them a desire to repent, to believe, to be changed, and that they would indeed be made new. It only comes by your grace, and you have to give us the faith to believe. I pray you do this work in them as well. We thank you for those who know you, for what you have given us. It's only uh, drive us to a, a greater pursuit of the way. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.